this month on Security Management Highlights. This problem is pretty tricky because now you're talking about threats from people to whom you've given access. At least 41 people have been killed at military installations in the United States since the Fort Hood shootings in 2009. Assistant Editor Lily Chapa takes a look at what's being done to establish insider threat programs and curb the violence. In September 2015, President Obama and Chinese leader Xi Jinping formed an important pact regarding cybersecurity. But will the agreement last? You know, it was a major step for both of them because very rarely do the United States and China agree at this level on almost anything. Then, a highly evolved leader would be one who is not stuck in the past with old methods and old systems. Gone are the days of sitting in the ivory tower and ruling with an iron fist. The traditional role of manager is evolving into a more dynamic position. Senior editor Mark Torallo reveals what experts are saying. And a happy new year to each and every one of you. I'm your host, assistant editor Holly Gilbert Stowell. That's all coming up in this episode of Security Management Highlights. For military officials, gathering intelligence on insider threats that could possibly turn into active shooters presents a major challenge. Assistant Editor Lily Chapa stops by to tell us more about her January feature on this issue and what's being done to address it. Hi, Lily. Happy New Year, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Holly. You too. So we're talking about our January stories, and for your feature this month, you covered military installations and active shooters, and you write about some of the recent tragedies that have occurred at these facilities. So can you just remind us of some of those tragic events and what they were? Sure. So in 2009, U.S. Army Major Nadal Hassan opened fire at Fort Hood, killing 13 people and injuring more than 30 others. Former employers had repeatedly expressed concerns about Hassan's poor work ethic, and a group of Army officials, psychologists, and teachers even gathered at one point to discuss his troubling behavior. In 2013, former Navy soldier Aaron Alexis shot and killed 12 people and injured three others at the Washington Navy Yard. During the month before the shooting, Alexis had filed police reports about being harassed and hearing voices, and he had visited multiple doctors about the issue. On the day of the shooting, Alexis used his pass as a government subcontractor to gain access to the base. And in 2015, Mohammed Abdulaziz went on a shooting spree in Chattanooga, Tennessee, targeting a military recruiting center and a Navy Reserve Center. Abdulaziz killed five and injured three before police shot and killed him. After the rampage, it was revealed that Abdulaziz abused prescription drugs, was planning on filing for bankruptcy, suffered from depression, and appeared to be self-radicalized. So in total, at least 41 people have been killed during attacks at military installations since that 2009 Fort Hood shooting. So obviously a lot of these suspects are you know, related to the military, they have clearances, so that makes it that much harder to protect a secure facility if those people are already on the inside. So it looks like the Government Accountability Office reviewed some of the policies that are supposed to prevent these types of events. You even spoke to the author of a recent report for your article. So what are some of the outcomes of that study and what did your source tell you? The report, which is called DOD Should Improve Information Sharing and Oversight to Protect U.S. Installations, is the latest update of the GAO's tracking of DOD efforts to implement insider threat detection programs at military installations. I spoke to Joe Kirschbaum, the author of the report, and he says that he focused on insider threat policies at the installation level, not just military headquarters. He saw a lot of top-down guidance that didn't really reach the installation level. For example, he said it was common to find that departments did not have a complete definition of what constitutes an insider threat within their guidelines. 
Like you said, Holly, this problem is pretty tricky because now you're talking about threats from people to whom you've given access. So that's why it's so important to focus on an insider threat. And it seems like, based on your findings, these military sites are working hard to establish insider threat programs to combat this problem. But the procedures that they're implementing include a lot of behavioral indicators. So why are they taking this approach? Yes, being on the lookout for behavioral indicators is an important part of any detection program. The FBI lists family problems or domestic violence, poor workplace behavior, physical or mental health problems, and anger issues as common indicators of high-risk behavior. There's a combination of factors that should be taken into consideration, but due to information sharing issues, behavior detection seems to be the most straightforward method. Even this information, though, is difficult to share. For example, in the military, high-risk behavior is commonly detected by behavioral health counselors, military chaplains, unit commanders, and outside law enforcement. But information sharing barriers are in place. Chaplains cannot lawfully share information that they have learned in a pastoral counseling context. Medical privacy laws prohibit doctors or behavioral health professionals from passing on troubling information. And some classified information can't be shared with people who don't hold clearances. Also, there is no required information sharing mechanism between on-base leaders and off-base law enforcement. And so there's no silver bullet, obviously, for stopping active shooters, as we've learned. But one of your sources, Robert Vickers, said that prevention planning can help thwart these deadly events at military installations. So what did he say? Bob Vickers is the chief of the Plans and Programs branch at Joint Base San Antonio, and he's working on developing a comprehensive insider detection program for the base. His approach includes assessing the risk for workplace violence at specific facilities, not just people. The assessment includes evaluating the value of the facility and what vulnerabilities are unique to that facility. This helps leaders make policy changes to reduce the risk of workplace violence. Vickers says that ensuring a positive workplace environment may help stop a vulnerable employee before they become truly high risk. Right now, this is just a pilot program, but Vickers says he hopes the entire Air Force will adopt the program in the future. Great. Well, we hope to follow up on his program in the future. Thank you so much, Lily. Thanks, Holly. According to the Chinese calendar, 2016 is the year of the fire monkey. The monkey embodies an intelligent and inventive person, a problem solver capable of working with others. But as cybersecurity editor Megan Gates explains, it's unclear whether a recent cyber agreement between the United States and China will reflect that sentiment. Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. Agreement isn't something we always expect to see between the United States and China, but you write that President Obama and Chinese leader Xi Jinping did make an important cyber pact in September of last year. What was that all about, Megan? So yeah, Holly, it was really surprising. Um, I don't think anybody was really anticipating that that would happen. But yeah, President Xi, he came to the United States on a state visit in September. Right then, there were all of these allegations that China was involved in the Office of Personnel Management, OPM, breach. And the United States was threatening to maybe issue possible sanctions against China for its involvement. And then unexpectedly, when President Xi was at the White House, he and Obama announced that they'd made a cyber pact, which basically says that neither country's government will use cyber economic espionage to steal trade secrets to pass them on to domestic companies. And they also agreed that, you know, they're going to cooperate on investigations and share more information. You know, it was a major step for both of them because very rarely do the United States and China agree at this level on almost anything. So it was a major breakthrough. 
Yes, and let's not forget that case of five Chinese nationals hacking into a few very important U.S. companies uh, in recent history. So what did your sources you spoke to for the article say about this pact? Do they think it will stick? What's their optimism level like? Well, everyone I talked to said that they were at least optimistic that China and the United States had agreed on something, you know, so that was a major thing. But most of them were still very skeptical of whether it would actually work. Adam Segal, who I spoke to from the Council of Foreign Relations, said he doesn't think we're likely to see a decrease in cyber attacks. And also Richard Baitlich from FireEye, he's also a non-fellow at the Brookings Institute, said he thinks that China will just acquire intellectual property and trade secrets through other means, whether it's investing in Western companies or purchasing them or basically hiring middlemen to hack into the United States for them so they can have plausible deniability. So there was sort of a consensus that we're probably still going to see this kind of activity continue. It just might, you know, be in a different way. So let's say that the United States does find evidence that Chinese nationals or the government is somehow, like you said, perhaps getting around traditional methods and loopholing their way into further espionage. What would the repercussions be? You know, what can the United States even do about it? Well, that's a good question, Holly. One thing they can do is in April of last year, President Obama issued an executive order that allows him to issue economic sanctions for cyber attacks. So these can be against a nation or specific individual. Individuals. And this can limit their access to the U.S. financial system and U.S. technology supply and infrastructure. So it is a major threat. And the White House was weighing issuing those sanctions against China or certain individuals in the Communist Party before the pact was announced in September. And Adam Segal said he didn't think the Obama administration would have made that threat if it wasn't prepared to carry it out. Another tactic that the United States could use if it doesn't think sanctions would be effective would be to possibly go after the Great Firewall in China, which is what basically censors their internet to control information in and out of the country, which is very important to China um, and to the, the ruling party. So Richard Baitlich said that possibly the United States and others could sort of figure out a way to get around that firewall to share information with the Chinese people that, you know, the Chinese government doesn't want them to know about. Not to be confused with the Great Wall of China, right? No, not quite the same thing. So, Megan, it does look like cybersecurity, obviously, is only going to continue to be a growing debate, not only between the United States and China, but amongst all nations. Um, How is the United Nations getting itself involved in the rules of cyber warfare? Well, the UN has been looking at this for a while now, and in August, it published a consensus report by the fourth group of governmental experts on information security. And in the report, it adopted a series of cyber norms that were proposed by the United States such as when it comes to critical infrastructure protection, the report said that countries should not conduct cyber activity that, quote, intentionally damages critical infrastructure or otherwise impairs the use and operation of critical infrastructure to provide services to the public. Similarly, the group said that states should not harm other states' authorized computer emergency response teams, you know, known as CERTs, C-E-R-T-Ss. But this group's actions are voluntary and non-binding, so they don't have a lot of teeth, you know, to require people to abide by them. And also the group after the report was published was dissolved, but it recommended creating another UN sponsor group to discuss the same topic in 2016 and 2017. And this idea is also gaining traction because after the US and China's pact was announced, I believe it was the UK announced a similar agreement with China just a month later. And then shortly after that, the G20 pledged to not conduct cyber economic espionage and that international law applies to cyberspace, which is a major deal because the United States, the European Union, 
and Russia and China are all part of the G20. And so these are the big guys sort of who are really looking at this area that it matters to them. And if they're involved in the rulemaking, we'll probably abide by the rules of the road. Fantastic assessment. And 2016 is definitely going to be an interesting year for cybersecurity. All signs point to that. Thank you so much, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. What does it mean to be a leader that's highly evolved? Senior editor Mark Tarallo joins us to talk about his January cover story on how the manager's role has changed in recent years. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the first podcast of the new year. Hi, Holly. So when people talk about a leader who is highly evolved, that makes me think of like Inspector Gadget with all these new high-tech features to them. But of course, we're talking about people. So what characteristics and how overall would you describe the makeup of one of these types of leaders? The highly evolved leader title refers to the evolution of management. And people say it's changed a lot. The practice of management has changed a lot in the last 30 years or so. So a highly evolved leader would be one who's really kept up with those changes and is not stuck in the past with old methods and old systems, but really, if not cutting edge, really kind of keeping abreast of current trends in management. Fantastic. And when you were interviewing sources for this story, just kind of tell us how you started out, what types of people you wanted to talk to, how did you know that they were leaders in their space, and just tell us about the evolution of your story. Yes. So since the story's about the evolution of management, I wanted to talk to people who have been in the management field or have familiarity with the field for a long time. People who've been in, in the space 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. And I also wanted to reach out to people who not only have they been in the space a long time, but they've really been in the trenches. They've been in fields like executive search, talent management, where they've worked with managers for years and years, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, up to the current time. So they could really talk about how things have changed. And did you have an idea of what they might say an effective leader like this would look like? I mean, you've been writing this column for a while now. And what did they say that surprised you? I did have an idea. As you said, I've been been writing this for a while. And in my uh, journalism career, I've interviewed a lot of CEOs. But I would say probably my ideas were probably a little bit fuzzy in my head. And what was nice about this story is talking to these veteran management experts, they were really able to help me conceptualize the ideas that I had and kind of put some flesh and blood on the bones of the ideas. That's great. And tell me, for example, one quality that they named that you hadn't thought of before, something that struck you. Yeah. Well, one of the things that really surprised me was how honest they were. Because, for instance, one source said, you know, in the old days, there was a common belief that staffers were inherently lazy. And management would have the view of, are they really working? Are they trying to come home early? We really need to keep an eye on them. And that was something that I kind of had a fuzzy idea of, but I was a little bit surprised and and appreciative that the source was so honest and kind of talking of the fallacies of management's practices 20, 30 years ago. Excellent. So a big theme in your story seems to be a forward-thinking leader actually needs to humble him or herself and kind of be one with their staff. So how does someone balance taking a leadership role but also taking a back seat at the same time? How do you maintain the respect and reverence of your employees if you're actually lowering yourself in some respects? Yeah, that's a good question. I think what a lot of highly evolved leaders say to that is that they look at themselves not as commanders in a command control 
well, but they look at themselves as not only coaches, but people who are always trying to align two things. For many managers who aren't CEOs, there are two main pieces. There are the their managers, their bosses, which tends to be upper management, maybe even a company CEO. And, you know, they're getting dictates or direction. Here's the, we want the way the company to go. Here's some of the initiatives we want to move forward on. Here's what we'd like to see from your department. And then the other piece is that the manager has staffers and each staffer has their own talents, has their own skill set, has their own ideas. And so I think the manager wants to keep the ideas and skill sets and accomplishments of the staffers in line with the larger picture of where the organization is going and what the organization wants to accomplish. So you're not dictating what your staff should do as much as you're saying, hey, I recognize all you can do and all your skills. Let's try to focus and let's try to align those and channel those in this direction, which is kind of where the organization wants to go. So a lot of well-roundedness and an idea, like you said, of your business plan. That all sounds really good. These days, we're hearing the term boss be swapped out for coach. So can you tell us a little bit more about how that role of a manager works? Yeah, well, as far as the uh, coaching aspect of it, one of my sources I thought had an interesting idea that coaching is very crucial. However, a lot of managers are busy. And so you don't want to get into the pattern of my coaching is basically correcting my employees when they're wrong, because then it becomes kind of a steady stream of negative feedback. So this one manager, said their company has a rule. It's the 75-25 rule, which is 75% of the time when you're coaching, you want to coach to someone's strength. You want to say, hey, you did this well. Let's do more of this. Or, you know, I, I think you've got a knack for this. Why don't we try this? Three out of the four times you're coaching, you're doing something like that. Only one out of the four times you're saying, hey, you did this. That's actually a mistake. You know, we need to correct it. So by kind of keeping the majority of the coaching on a positive note, on the positive reinforcement angle, it makes overall coaching more effective. So almost like a cheerleader at the same time. Yes, there's a real cheerleading aspect to it and also a recognition aspect. When you recognize your staff's talent, that has many positive benefits, especially when it comes to engagement and retention. So Mark, if we had a crystal ball and we could look at the future of management, what do you think we would see and what did your sources say? Well, it's really interesting because if you try to look at kind of the final frontier, you've got companies like Zappos, the shoe company, the online shoe company, Morningside, which produces a lot of products, especially agricultural products. They're moving toward a no manager model. Wait, can you say that one more time? Uh, They're moving toward a no managers model. Okay, just wanted to make sure I heard that right. (laughs) The brief, brief history of that is, oh, a good several years ago, there was a very influential article in the Harvard Business Review, and the title of the article was... First thing we do is kill all the managers. And basically, it was talking about how this kind of cutting edge is evolving. And it's really an extension of some of the things we were talking about, which is right now you've got highly evolved managers, people who are on the cutting edge as servant leaders, as people who are coaching, and they're not ordering from the top, but they're working with their people right side by side. You take that a step further and you eliminate the manager's role as it exists now. What you do have is a bunch of peer groups who work together and they kind of all play the role to some extent of manager as as well as worker. You know, this is not obviously practiced by 
majority of companies in the American workplace now. And it's probably unclear in the security sector how well that would work, depending on what type of security arrangements a company has. But there are companies who are finding success with this, and it's something that probably more people are going to look for. I think that the, the final message for managers is, while your company may never reach that point, so don't worry, you know, you'll still have a job in the future, this is an extension of the servant leader working side by side rather than working from above. And that is going to become more and more popular. It's already has fairly widespread currency, and I just think it's really going to grow in popularity. Thank you, Mark. That's all fascinating, and we really appreciate you keeping us on top of management trends, and we're excited to see what more you'll bring us in the new year. Thanks, Holly. That does it for this month's podcast. Once again, from all of us at Security Management, we want to wish you a happy new year, and thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out December's bonus episode on terrorism and the Planned Parenthood shooting, and be on the lookout throughout this month for additional podcast material. I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Bye-bye.